being a lesbian back then, yes, I knew that people looked down upon it. Shit, I'm in Texas, right? It's, it's the same way today. It's better, but we could be so much more. I knew that there was a perception for anybody that's gay, right? But I never knew everything that was associated with the way they combined homosexuality and sexual abuse against the children. You know, I had no idea about that. I remember you saying how, like, from the get go, your attorney was like, you're going to lose. Like, (laughs) I, I know that there's no evidence and I know that you have everything going for you. And yet you're going to lose because the accusation is what it is. And because society has these preconceptions about gay people and like there's just a million things that have set you up to fail. Did you believe him? Did you think that's what's going to happen? No, God, no. Mm -hmm. Never once did I think I'm going to lose. Never once. Um, I just had that much faith in the system. Feeling lost? Then you're in the right place. I'm Amanda Knox. And I'm Christopher Robinson. And this is Labyrinths. In the 80s and 90s, hysteria over satanic ritual abuse spread like a plague across the country. Daycare workers and babysitters were accused of molesting children, forcing them to participate in pornographic films, in the mutilation and sacrificing of animals, in the digging up and desecration of corpses. From California to New Jersey to Texas, hundreds were accused, leading to 190 formal prosecutions and 83 convictions. And all this without a scrap of physical evidence, not a single satanic robe or altar, no blood, no weapons, no animal carcasses, no DNA. To this day, no definitive evidence has been found for even one case of satanic ritual abuse. This moral panic was a backlash to secularism and feminism, and it was aided by a deeply flawed understanding of repressed memory recovery and coercive and leading interview techniques by social workers, therapists, and law enforcement. The children who were coerced into accusing their own relatives and caretakers were the first victims of this panic. The secondary victims were people like Anna Vasquez, often people who were different. Anna was accused along with three other friends, all of them lesbian and three of them Latina, of sexually assaulting two young girls. This was despite a complete lack of physical evidence and obvious inconsistencies in the girls' testimony, something that often happens with coached and coerced abuse allegations. Years later, one of the girls recanted saying that their father had pressured her into making up the story. But at the time, with satanic hysteria in the air, the prosecution had far too easy a time ramming through the wrongful convictions of the San Antonio Four. I was 19 years old. I didn't know anything. God, if I knew now what I know then, I would have never cooperated. Mm. And that's horrible because that's all people do is yeah especially the innocent people they want to cooperate they want to help right i mean mm-hmm. let, let's figure this out let's vindicate me and mm-hmm. move forward right and it just doesn't work like that you know the thing that always gets me is that the the lie 
about both of your cases is not just horrific, it's not just vile, it's also so unbelievable. Mm -hmm. It's so unbelievable and absurd. The story that people believed, that they Uh swallowed, that newspaper writers put forward, that prosecutors put forward, that juries believed. Gleefully. It's such a totally, obviously made up story. Oh, that's the woman that put her nieces on this altar of lust. I mean, it was just disgusting. I just see a picture of an altar, right? And a child and and we're in black robes and it's just, (laughs) oh my God, like it's Mm. disgusting. I'm curious how having seen people believe that obviously false thing, if that's changed how you look at the world and what people around you believe, having seen how easily people came to believe this lie. Yeah. If I, you know, see a news program and I hear the story, I'm just not a hundred percent. Oh, it's hundred percent facts. No, I'm always like, well, we've got to keep an open mind. Uh, don't be so quick to judge. I know that wrongful conviction and imprisonment has super changed me and, and, and given me what I feel like is a lot of very valuable perspective. And obviously, you know, it's changed the course of my life. It's changed the course of your life. And like one of the more sad things about it is it becomes this big thing that everyone makes a big deal about. And you're in the headlines and everyone's like satanic panic, sexual blah, 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 like uh, lowly evil women with their crazy sex lives. Uh-huh. And then you disappear into the system and no one wants to hear from you anymore. They're like, it's done. And you're like, no, it's not done. You're living in a world where like a lie is living on top of your reality and you have to still live in that world. The way that I sort of talk about it um, when it comes to my own case is there's a version of me that exists in the world to this day, and people mistake that Foxy Noxy version of me for me. Like, today, still, they think, oh, I know who Amanda Knox is. It's that person who was a part of that crime. And it's like, that's a version of me that exists in the world that I now have to interact with. I have to live in a world where other people are informed by a lie and that is shaping my reality. Do you feel like you're still dealing with stuff like that? Sometimes. I mean, you you brought it up, San Antonio 4. That's how we're recognized, right? But I want to be my own person now. I want to put that beside me. I know you go through it a lot more than I do. I, I can't even imagine, but I'm like, I know that's my life, right? That That's what happened to me. But I'm trying to disassociate with that. I'm not a victim, you know? So I just want to move forward. I just want to, you know, help others and um, try to get away from that. I really don't want to be remembered like that. I want to be remembered as somebody that uh, came out of this, you know, stronger than ever, honestly, more educated and uh, out there helping others. In 2012, after serving 14 years of her 15-year sentence, Anna was unexpectedly paroled. Her three other co-defendants were still in prison, and they all remained wrongly convicted. I had been into solitary, refused to take part in a sex offender treatment program, and it sent me to one of, uh, so it's called medium custody, and it's one of the lowest custody levels, right? Well, one day I, I get this paper in the mail saying that I may parole. 
And I could not for the life of me believe that because my custody levels had changed. I knew the consequences that were going to come with it. They take away your privileges and you lose custody levels. So now from just shy of a trustee level status, um, I got shot down all the way to the second lowest. So it was medium custody that I was released from parole. There was a time when I was like, why am I going? I mean, it was just unheard of for somebody to be released from medium custody on yeah. parole. But after thinking about it and, and praying about it, I was like, this is my time. This is what I'm going to have to do. I've been chosen to do this. And I couldn't understand it, but I just put it up to God. You know, I mean, he had a purpose. I didn't know what it was, mm -hmm. but once I was released, I was going to keep our story alive, the case moving, you know, trying to talk about it and educate people and finally hear our side. Because before the media was in favor of us, I mean, we were these four lesbians that gang raped these two little girls. And it was just the, the headlines were horrific, you know, so we were already guilty in the eyes of the public even before we went to trial. So that that's what I was going to do. I was going to continue to fight because I didn't feel complete without them. It wasn't fair. Yeah. We all need to be out. You know, we're all innocent. So. And you hadn't been able to talk with your co-defendants while you were in, right? Because you can't write letters back and forth to other prisoners. Yeah. Liz was in the same prison that I was. The other ones were not. The only way that we could know was if somebody was transferred from one unit to another. Hmm. Um, now, when I say that, just because Liz was in the same unit, it wasn't like we could stay in the same dorm. I mean, we're in prison. You know, it's not like you have freedom um, like you would want to. So it was restricted. In 2013, thanks to Anna's advocacy, and with the help of the Innocence Project of Texas, her three other co-defendants, Liz, Cassandra, and Christy, were released on bail. That was the first time I had seen Christy in 13 years. And the others, yeah, it was just kind of uh, if somebody ran into him mm -hmm. or if my mom went to go visit one of the girls, mm -hmm. she would just basically say, you know, she's okay or, you know, something happened, but not very long conversations. Yeah. I mean, it was hard when we were able to speak and discuss about, the, you know, the things that we went through in there and what we did. Right. It's funny how all of us tried to write somebody, whether it was media, whether it was uh, the attorneys, you know, the when you went to the law library um, to ask for help. It, all of us did it. And it was just amazing that nobody gave up. And when you think about co-defendants, I mean, that's almost unheard of. I mean, there's a lot of people that turn on each other. And it, it was just amazing that, you know, everybody stuck to their guns and hmm. um, weren't afraid, you know, mm -hmm. of prison. And shit, that's something to be said. Yeah. Especially, and you can probably relate to this now, but the mothers, they, they left their children. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Totally. Like, it, yeah. I can't imagine the temptation to just be like, whatever you say, I'll say whatever you need me to say. Like, right. let me get back to my children. Yes. Like, ugh. Yeah. Ugh. It gives me the creeps. Um, In that between period when you, you had that sort of surreal moment of like, why me? Why am I the one 
who has to get out and be the voice. I guess I'm the voice now. In a, any given day, what what were you trying to accomplish and how did you even manage to do that with all of the sort of stigma against you and the story against you? Like, how do you even begin to be the voice of the San Antonio Four? Wow, I just kind of took it a day at a time. Like I said, I didn't know what was expected. We had already started the documentary while we were on the inside in prison, right? So I knew that, you know, that was going to happen. Satanic cults, satanic ritual abuse has become the fastest growing and most controversial psychological phenomenon in the country. It's a modern twist to an ancient story. Investigated their world of covens and sacrifices. This case is probably the last gasp of the satanic ritual abuse panic. Allegations were made that four young women had gang raped these two little girls. The film, called Southwest of Salem, followed the women for years, starting in 2011, documenting their fight for exoneration. The filmmakers also followed Anna after she was released. I think, Amanda, there was a, a misrepresentation uh, when I was released. It, it almost felt like, well, why are you released? Hmm. But they don't know the extent of all the shit I had to go through. Being a registered sex offender and having to go into that place, Amanda, with all of those other people, which now I'm not going to just say all of them are guilty, but oh my God, you know, having to follow certain routes to take, not being able to pass by uh, a church. They said it's a pl any place where children gather. So you're looking at a church, you're looking at playgrounds, you're looking at schools, libraries, the yeah, list what, goes on and on. What's left, you know, it's like- <laughs> Your world becomes so yeah. small. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, so coming out from my driveway at home, you could either go right or left. I could never go left because at the end of the street, there was a church. Never. Wow. If there was an HEB that was maybe a five minute walking, right? I would have to go down and take about eight to 10 minutes just to get there, just because I had to follow a route that missed a church. Or even, you know, sometimes they have uh, uh, daycares that are inside mm. the home, mm -hmm. you know? And it's like, oh my God, like, how do you. It's really hard. It's almost like it's set up for failure. But at the same time, Amanda, I mean, I understand the importance of having these rules in place. It just sucked that I fell under that category. Going back to prison was not an option. So I had to follow everything to the T. And, you know, people would always say, how do they know that you went down those streets that, you know, following the route? Well, they polygraph you. So there is no line. And we already know about polygraphs, right? I mean, how sometimes they're inaccurate and sometimes they're not. I don't know. It's just weird. It's just not. You don't want to risk it. Support. Yeah, no. I mean, by hmm. no means. So, um, yeah, I followed it to the T. I mean, paranoid. Those hmm. two years that I was on that, because you, you just never know, Amanda, especially after what we've been through before all this happened. I really believed the stories on TV. You see somebody getting arrested. They did something, you know, had yeah. to be. Nobody makes a mistake like that. Mm -hmm. Little did I know that it happens all the time. So I, I don't think we'll ever have 100% faith in the system. 
because we know firsthand how it can affect us and Mm. ruin somebody's life. Sounds like just that part of it alone, the requirements of the registry is is a trauma-inducing thing. Do you Mm -hmm. find lingering effects like driving by a church or a school? Does it flash in your mind having had those restrictions on you? I think in a sense it does. I mean, I'm not going to park outside of a school just to use the phone or something. I just, I will not do that. And then it goes back to, I'm always on guard, always thinking, well, what could it look like if I'm here? So Uh, yeah, I just try to stay completely away from all of it, you know, to where anybody could have something to say. hmm. And it's, it's really hard. It's like always staying on your toes. Yeah, constant low-level paranoia, right? Yeah. Anna Vasquez suffered a tremendous miscarriage of justice. But this episode is about more than a wrongful conviction. It's also a love story. I have an ex-girlfriend by the name of Jolene. Anna and Jolene grew up on the same street. What broke them apart was like a little bridge, like a creek or something. And they grew up together. In fact, their brothers hung out with each other. That's the voice of Denise Tristan. So in my relationship with my ex, um, she had told me, have you ever heard of this story, San Antonio 4? But I was like, no, never. She was, you're gay and you haven't heard this story. I said, look, being though I'm gay, I didn't have time to watch television or the news. I was too busy working, raising my kids and doing what I needed to do and never heard of the story. Denise began looking into the case while Anna and her three other co-defendants were still protesting their innocence from inside prison walls. Knowing the story and um, looking into it, the more I heard about it, it's like, okay, this doesn't seem right. I mean, they don't, it doesn't even add up. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure this out. And during this time, my partner and I had at the time had gone out to the courthouse to get the, um, the transcripts hmm. and we paid for them. And we sat there and I was on the living room floor. I didn't want to mess them up. And I had yellow sticky notes here and there with this being said here. Like, why didn't they question this part? Why didn't the girl's attorney say something about this? I don't have a degree in law or any of that. But it, like I said, didn't take a rocket scientist to figure this stuff was just stupid. Like witches on a broom, really? Of the San Antonio Four, Denise first reached out to Cassandra, Anna's ex-girlfriend. I became good friends with Cassandra. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> and then during this time, when little stories were starting to come out, I went, I went out of my way and I would buy newspapers and cut them out, put them in envelopes and mail them. And this led her to connect with Debbie Nathan, a writer who was advocating for the San Antonio Four. Debbie Nathan reached out to us and contacted my ex and I and said, is there any way you can send me the, the transcripts from that? So I went to my real estate office because they had the big Xerox machine that you could <laughs> use. And I stood there for about four hours scanning and then email was much as the, the, the file allow you to do it. And I was just doing it, sending all that to her. And that's when I started investing more and more time and trying to do what I could. I mean, I even sat on my desktop trying to reach out to, I don't know, Montel Williams, Oprah Winfrey, 2020. Mm. And, you know, when you try to reach out to those people, okay, can you describe the story in about 150 characters? Really? <laughs> yeah. And then you're trying to write something to them and you don't want to sound ignorant. But if you got 150 characters, because becomes C-U-Z, you know, F-O-R became the number four because you have to shorten it. And it's like, you just please just go to this link, which uh, Daryl Otto had a link to the San Antonio Four that he had. And of course, a lot of people are like, I'm not going to open that link because what if it's a... Mm. um, Something bad, whatever, spammers or whatever you call them. I would send letters before. I even sent one to the Innocence Project. Hmm. Two 
to them and they go, well, I'm sorry, you know, at this time we're not taking any cases and the cases we do take have to have DNA. And of course there was no DNA in this case. Yeah. But thank you, you know, for reaching out and even the law universities I was trying and mm. nobody would answer me mm. or come to me. And so that's how I got involved. Denise just wanted justice. She had no idea she would find love. Denise had written Anna letters in prison, just like she had with the other three. But it wasn't until Anna was released that the two met in person. I knew that one of the girls was coming out. I just didn't know which of the the four were coming out. And I just know that I wanted to help in any which way I could. So and then it would, when it turned out to be it was Anna, I remember where kind of where she lived. And so I thought, you know, well, let me just wait for the hoopla of everything, the news reports, everybody going by, give it some time. So like been like a week, I think, or a week and a half maybe. And I stopped by to go to her house and I knocked on the door and no one uh, came to the door, but I can hear somebody in the house because her mom's house is older and the floor's creaked. And I heard somebody walking, but I was just like, oh, okay, they don't come to the door. It's, that's fine. So I go to my car to get a card, one of my real estate cards to write in the back, you know, it's Denise and, um, you know, if you need anything, please give me a call. I'd like to talk to you. I left it on the mailbox. And as I walk back to my car and I look back and see somebody in the curtain, not even nonchalantly. I mean, it's just, you can see it like, okay. <laughs> so I left it at that. And then she finally calls me like a day or so later. And I was supposed to meet with her. And um, I ended up canceling because I was going to have a steroid shot in my knee. So we set up another time. So before me coming over, she uh, literally uh, screamed me uh, like, well, wait a minute, let me ask you some questions. She goes, have you ever been in prison? Uh, no. Have you been on probation? No. Have, you know, all these questions. I said, no, I, I'm a realtor. They do a background check, finger, fingerprints. I work for Southwest. I had to go through all of that too. And she goes, okay. And she goes, do you have any children or do you have any kids? I said, yes, I do. She goes, well, then you can't come see me. And she's like, I said, what? Why? I'm not like going to bring them with me. She goes, well, anybody that has kids under the age of 70, said, girl, mine are like 20 something years and older. And she's like, oh, okay. The first night, that she came over to my house, of course, because I'm a registered sex offender, can't go anywhere, right? Mm. Um, have to be in the house by like 10 o'clock. It was like maybe 6.30 in the evening and in her mom's house, the front porch had a light directly on the porch. So when Anna stood, came out of the door, I couldn't see the front of her because of the shadow and the light was behind her, it faced on me. Come out of the front door and there's a, a porch light right behind me. So I can see her, but she can't really see me because I'm right. like in a chef, you know? Yeah. And when I saw her, I was like, oh, wow, you're pretty. <laughs> <laughs> and that right there kind of like, I don't know, there's a lot of ugly people in prison. And right when I was going to say hello, she's like, uh, oh, wow, you're pretty. And then <laughs> she said that out I loud. Lost all my <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I lost all my coot. I couldn't be suave anymore. Because <laughs> I didn't know what to say. And I learned to say, you know, not say, oh, be quiet. No, I'm not. I learned to say thank you. So I was like, well, thank you. And I walked in at that point. I was really nervous because I didn't expect that. Even though in the back of my head, I could still hear her telling me that I was trying to be prim and proper and, you know, fixing my shirt and not <laughs> do anything. And I couldn't stop thinking about it. It was like so loud in my, my head. 
as she was talking to me and I could see where she's just looking at me, you know, up and down. I was really nervous and I wasn't nervous when I first got there until she said that. So anyway, <laughs> with that being said, we sat down in the living room and we talked and she told me her rules that the probation officer had given her and um, a parole officer, sorry, had given her. And I was like, wow. And in my mind, I was like, dang, her age this neighborhood, their high school friends all have kids at that age and they're, you know, 30s, 38, 37. Yeah. So no one's been able to visit her or they've been in trouble. When she learned about all the restrictions that I was under, um, she really felt compelled to just be my friend. When I told her that, she goes, gee, did you feel sorry for me? <laughs> and I was like, well, it's just a little bit, but in my busy life with grandchildren, um, Southwest Airlines, real estate, working also part-time at a restaurant, helping somebody. Then now I'm throwing something else in my, you know, in my lap to come visit her because she really couldn't have any visitors. She really couldn't go anywhere either. She couldn't do anything. She felt bad because I couldn't do anything. I couldn't go anywhere. You know, I couldn't even watch. um, There was restrictions on the movies I would watch. What? Yes. I couldn't watch anything over PG-13. What? Yes, I couldn't watch anything rated R. I couldn't watch movies that were wow. not rated. Yeah, yeah. And how do they know that? They polygraph you. <laughs> wow. Wow, okay. Um, I got to show you my paperwork because you probably can't even imagine that happens, right? But isn't it funny that, you know, I was, quote unquote, a registered sex offender against a child, right? But yet I can't watch anything... But G, PG, and PG yeah, 13. Like you're a I child. Mean, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what? Wow. Yeah. So, um, long story short, she uh, would come over with board games hmm. and we would just talk. And that's how we started to get to know each other by just kind of hanging out at home and couldn't have a cell phone besides a uh, talk and text, no. No internet, Hmm. no phone with a camera. So it was literally a flip phone. When she was around, you know, she was subject to be searched as well. If my parole officer came. Wow. Yeah, she couldn't have um, any kind of alcohol in her vehicle, on her. She couldn't uh, leave any kind of computer devices Hmm. that I could have gotten a hold of. It was just insane. But it was really just kind of like old school, how you would just kind of spend time together with Hmm. somebody because I saw the devices, right? I, I saw how people were having lunch and they were on devices. Mm. They weren't even having a conversation anymore. Yeah. So um, I guess that gave us the ability to do that because I, I couldn't have all that stuff. So it was over board games and um, just talking. Um, and then it went from there. No. Mm. And she hasn't left since. No. <laughs> You're a good talker. <laughs> <laughs> no she was great she was great but she she went through hell guys yeah she really did um you know there was a time when my parole officer came and uh point out uh, asked me about her and i was like you know i'm we're in a relationship now and um she tells me she has to go down to the office with me tomorrow right we go down there and um she basically makes Denise signed uh, a paper saying that Denise will report me if she sees, if Denise sees me um, like watching children or doing something Uh. that I'm not supposed to do. It was almost like an affidavit. She would report me 
by being in a relationship with me. I mean, she went through hell. I mean, how many people would do that? Yeah. Like, I'd be gone. This is just too much, right? I mean, her whole world changed as well. As a realtor, I have a bunch mm-hmm. of clients, but there was this one couple that I, one of my very first year when I started out in real estate, um, became um, loyal clients. You know, they were there to buy, sell, buy, sell, buy, sell. And they had called me up and they were ready to sell again. This time they wanted to live more like in the Joneses kind of say in San Antonio. And so I should go and did a marketing analysis. And I said, okay, well then let me know in a couple of weeks once the house is ready and you got everything packed up, you know, we'll move forward. And I didn't bother to bug them or call them. I just, I don't like bugging my clients. I figure, you know, when they're ready, mm-hmm. you know, they'll call me instead of all these hundreds of emails you get from a realtor and stuff. So then about the third week, I just reached out and said, Hey, how's it going? Just want to check in and see what the status is. And, um, they didn't answer me. Hmm. Uh, I was an email and it was a text and then a phone call. I didn't hear anything from them. And then finally, um, the wife calls me and says, you know, I'm so sorry. My husband is a captain and he's in the air force. He just happened to look at your Facebook and, saw this uh, with, when Anna was going through fighting for her exoneration and everything else and saw these different things. And we didn't know and nothing against who you are because we know who you are. We've worked with you. We loved your work, but he doesn't want it to get back to, you know, his squad or, you know, all that other stuff. And it was, I guess, a nervous thing because they have a daughter. So she was very careful how she was mm. talking to me. And I understood it. I said, no, that's okay. I get it. I understand. She goes, no, I'm so sorry because we loved you. We can't, we, we loved your work. You've always treated us well. You've always been loyal and honest and, and ethical with everything. It's just, he's really worried about this. And I said, I understand. So when I got off the phone and had heard me and she gave me a hug and said, I'm sorry. I'm really, really sorry that you lost a really mm. good client because of me. And I said, no, that's okay. I'm, I'm good. I'm good. And, um, some of the things like a lot of Anna's prison friends, you know, before Anna had her Facebook, she was using mine or we had it together because Mike had suggested back in the day for them not to get on social media just yet because things could be perceived wrong. So with that being said, a lot of her prison friends were requesting our friendship and I was okay. They're throwing gang signs on their social media or saying things using the word B-I-T-C-H or all these other things like, uh, I can't do this anymore, Anna. I said, because this is also my page. And if people see this and perceive it, also with Southwest Airlines, I, I, I don't want to get in trouble. Yeah. She understood. Time for you to put your big girl panties on and have your own Facebook now. <laughs> <laughs> so that was kind of the stuff. And then, of course, she got her own Facebook. A lot of women were Facebooking her, you know, requesting her and then sending her messages, sending her, her pictures of, you know, parts of their bodies and stuff mm. like that. And Ooh. trying to reach out to talk to her, you know, you're coming to Austin. Can we meet? If you ever need a shoulder to talk, lean on, you can talk to me. I'm like, really? Who am I? Chop liver? <laughs> 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 so I don't know if she ever told you, but I went on her Facebook and I, I changed her picture and I put the picture of the dog, <laughs> of our dog. <laughs> so she kept getting these messages like, oh, what a cute picture. And she's thinking, what the hell's going on? So she looked at her Facebook picture and she goes, did you change my picture for a dog? And I said, yep. <laughs> and I blocked all those other women. <laughs> so, yes. Excuse me. But anyway, that was it. That was what gave us the kind of the harder thing about it. But never, uh, nothing that we couldn't really, really handle. And I uh, guess I did lose a couple of clients. But, you know, it's okay. Now they know who she is and it's different, you know. Two have reached out, not that couple, but two have reached out and were, you know, very apologetic to me. And they're just because they didn't know too much about the story. Which yeah. I get. Were you ever expecting to fall in love 
after everything that happened? God, no. (laughs) (laughs) I I have these plans. I'm going to enjoy my family. Now, this is before um, knowing the restrictions, okay? So, yeah, was my world turned upside down when I had those restrictions put on me. But I was, you know, I'm going to spend time with my family. You know, I wanted to catch back up with my nephew who I had started a relationship with in prison, right? Mm -hmm. Like he could go and see me of course, behind the glass. But, you know, we would talk about going to um, SeaWorld and parks or whatever, just together to hang out. I mean, it was, and then it stopped. But my focus was just to get reconnected with my family. It wasn't, I'm going to go and start dating. Um, Honestly, I didn't even think about that. Mm -hmm. Um, I was just thinking about reconnecting with my family and continuing to keep our story alive but these things are not planned when they happen it happened a pretty lady showed up on your doorstep (laughs) (laughs) with a board game (laughs) yeah i mean it's it's sweet i know that she's been through a crazy journey because like because chris has been through a crazy journey and i think that one of the things that i think is really beautiful just about like Innocence Network conferences and us being able to actually spend time with each other as we bring our people. And Chris can talk to someone like Denise or other partners of exonerees or wrongfully convicted people and just be like, oh, yeah, you've had a knife photoshopped in your hand. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Like and people Mm -hmm. have looked at you like you must be some weird murder porn person because you're right? dating I someone mean, like yeah um so it's all love what is anna like as a partner well you got a, you got a couple hours <laughs> <laughs> as a partner i don't know how to, to phrase this but if my dad were alive he'd think she'd be perfect if she was a man oh. <laughs> <laughs> Should I say? Um, and he was good he was fine with it I mean he accepted it which I thought he wouldn't be because my dad was very um old-fashioned Hispanic kind of guy mm-hmm. and he did but as a partner you know she's there for everything she's there to uplift me when I do something or I have a sale or I've got something under contract you know she's my I'm not gonna say cheerleader because she wouldn't like that but she's my, my team <laughs> <laughs> Cool. She's awesome. And, and I appreciate her so much. Every day, I appreciate her. What was it like falling in love with Anna? Because this is something that I think that Chris can deeply relate to you about. Anna's story is hugely in the news and people knew about it and it had taken over her life. Like, how do you navigate that while you're getting to know her and while you find yourself falling in love with her? How do you navigate well, you're that? Well, you're going to make me cry again. <laughs> um, well, I think Yes, Chris and I would have a lot in common, but I think as a woman to woman, um, mm. women's needs are different, you know, and some of us are like nurturing, motherly like. And with Anna, she's a, a lot masculine, but when meeting her and listening to her talk and just I look at her. and think what kind of person would think that she would do something like this? Yeah. Because the way she is with my grandkids, I mean, I'm a, my, my grandkids tell me, you know, grandma, why aren't you one of those nice grandmas? I am a nice grandma. I'm just, you know, when there's a no, it means no. I'm not going to let you get away with it because I feel like I'm teaching them. But anyway, and Anna's like, hon, do you think, and you know, you're a little rough on that one? I'm like, no, I'm not. 
<laughs> I let her handle that. She's really, believe it or not, without having kids, she's got a lot of motherly instincts in her. She's a big caregiver. Mm-hmm. So when I started falling in love with her because of who she was, her humbleness, her loyalty, <clears throat> um, you know, having my first surgery on my knee, I mean, it's like if it was her knee that was mm-hmm. had the surgery. She knew exactly how to care for me versus me. I probably would be a rough nurse, like Nurse Ratchet or something. <laughs> <laughs> and all those qualities about her is what I fell in love with. Mm-hmm. Just looking at her, I mean, <sighs> it took my breath away. Not her outside, but her inside mm-hmm. yeah. of who she was. And how much she cared about the other three. Because mm-hmm. it wasn't just about her. It was about all of them. Yeah. She never thought about just herself. She always thought about them. And it was really hard to watch her cry and get emotional all the time. And get with all the um all the people that you know that interview her, she would try to stay really strong and try not to break and try not to cry. Mm. But when it came to the other three girls, she put herself back and put them in front. Mm. And it was never really about her. She wasn't even selfish about anything. Hmm. Even to the day when we had that little barbecue, the plate sale, and trying to figure a way of holding their money, all four of them, into the penny. If it was 832 cents, that's what they got. $800.32. She's a very loyal person, a loyal hmm. friend, a caring friend. We fit together as one. She made it easy to fall in love with her. <laughs> she didn't make it hard. When you think back to the Anna that this hadn't happened to yet, do you feel like she is still a part of you? What parts of you is still there that are the Anna that didn't get wrongly convicted? You know what? Not not very many. Hmm. Um, You know, I was 19, you know, fresh year prior had just graduated high school not a care in the world right had no idea um you know didn't pay attention to news i was just out there having a good time Mm -hmm. you know um so being a kid not having to worry about responsibilities and now i guess i'm not as carefree as i used to be i'm always aware of my surroundings and the people in them which is like you know, it, it's say, for example, I have family members. Well, if that family member is doing drugs or smoking weed or whatever, I don't need to be around them. Mm. You know, I'm just giving you a scenario. Not that's not actual facts, but I'm just trying to tell you that it was something that I didn't. It was just me. I didn't look at other people and their actions because mm. now I know now I know you could be involved in it mm. without even really knowing it it could be the assumption and then there you yeah. go with the whole skepticism about investigations about you know um the criminal justice system and how you know things happen and not everything is black and white right but um so yeah i've uh, become a little bit more serious i don't know it's just more responsible um 
I guess, more in touch with how things can go wrong so fast. Yeah, it sounds like you're always on the lookout for don't give them an opportunity to misconstrue anything. Yeah, I'm going to share this this one thing with you guys. Because of what happened, I, I refuse to be around children alone, oh. period. Right? Like, don't leave my nephew or my niece with me. No. Unless somebody's there. You know, I just won't. And I never used to be like that. Hmm. My nephews and nieces, before all this happened, those were my children. Because, you know, they. I had older brothers that had children. And I think my oldest nephew is like seven years apart, you know, me and him. So we kind of grew up together, right? Yeah. But um, that was that was my baby nephew, right? Now he's like, I don't know, uh, what, 30, 38? 38. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> yeah. But that's still my baby nephew. You know, that's my baby. Yeah. But now it's like, mm-mm. Mm. and that's unfortunate. Yeah. That's something you lost. That's not even your fault. Like, ugh. Yeah. Yeah. And I was counting on you babysitting. (laughs) (laughs) The San Antonio Four were all released from prison by 2013, but it wasn't until 2016 that they were finally exonerated. For Anna, exoneration brought up some unexpected emotions. Once she got exonerated and uh, all the, you know, the reporters came around and everything, and um, it was a day before Thanksgiving, and a lot of our friends from like Rockport, Austin, Houston, Dallas, were all going to come in. And she just kind of looked at me and she goes, you know what? Um, can I be alone for my, by myself in the room? And I'm like, okay, are you sure? Do you sure? You know, I mean, this was a shocker for me because I'm so used to taking care of her and things. And she's like, no, I just need a moment. And do me a favor. Will you call our friends and tell them not to come? And I'm like, mm-hmm. okay. So I sat in the other room with her mom and I was, of course, puzzled and thinking like, did I say something wrong? Did I do something wrong? And then like about four or five hours, she comes out. She just told me, she goes, you know, um, for 20 something years of my life, Denise, all I've known is to fight for my freedom. What do I do now? I'm 40. I don't know what to do now. Yes, it's a weight lifted off my shoulder, but I'm lost. Mm. And so I understood that. I dealt with it, like I said, for 24 years. I mean, that was even longer than I had lived before it all began. I just, I broke. I, Mm -hmm. and I was telling Denise, what the hell am I going to do with my life now? It was Mm -hmm. like, that was all I knew to fight for my innocence. Then it was taken away. You would think that you would be ecstatic, you know, um, jumping for joy, everything. And I ended up having a down day and we canceled everything. I didn't see anybody. I just couldn't explain it. And it sounds crazy, but I had lost my purpose. Like, yeah, it's weird. It's crazy. I don't, you know. No, it's not. It's not crazy. It's totally not crazy. That moment of crisis that you had when it was like all over and you were like, okay, now what? Now Mm -hmm. my life begins. Mm -hmm. And like, how do I dig myself out of this so I can just live my life? I often worry about this, that like there's nothing that I ever really do that will define me as much as this thing I didn't do. Do you worry about that? (laughs) Yes. No, I mean, perfectly said. Yes, you're absolutely right. But I mean, look how far you've come and what you've accomplished. And yet it's all 
on a back burner because this is Amanda Knox, the, you know, um, she was in Italy and, and did this horrific thing. And, you know, somehow you beat the system. Not that you were, you know, innocent all along of it, right? No, you you found a, a loophole or something. You know, mm-hmm. it's just ridiculous. I mean, hopefully we're wrong, friend, right? I mean, hopefully yeah. we'll be looked at, you know, in a positive light rather than the lies, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, why do people want to believe those horrific lies about us, mm-hmm. you know, rather than see where you guys are now? This kind of issue is common in the world of exonerees. You spend decades fighting to prove your innocence, then when you finally do, then what? Who are you beyond that fight? It takes time to figure it out. Once she connected again with herself and became her, her individual self again, the changes that I've noticed is she, I guess I could say, and I don't want to say grow up, it was time for her to be an adult, you know? Mm-hmm. Time to pay bills. <laughs> 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 when you didn't have those before, when you had to do the prison, she kind of evolved to trying to, I guess, take the role as now I'm an adult. Now I'm your partner. Yes, I've been your partner, but now mm. I'm your partner. Partner. Mm. And um, the changes I saw on her were more. Um, she's always been loving with me. I just felt like a little. She was able to breathe. Mm. You know, unbutton that top button, and now. I'm good. Now I can kind of move on with my life and we have each other and she knows I have her back no matter what it is, no matter where we go. And I've always been her rock and she's always been mine. She's always tells me, you know, like it's been hard for me on some of these things and you made it easier. Some of these things by talking to me and calming me down and helping me see it another way. What kind of other ways were you able to show her how to think about everything? By not reading the comments Hmm. in the newspaper, ignoring the comments. You may get angry and you want to text something back or write something back and I'll let her go ahead, but don't send it because hmm. you're going to regret it. You can't take it back. She's learned to let a lot of that just brush off and fall off and not worry about it. It's because I think in prison, you, you couldn't do that. You couldn't show your feelings. Hey, you know, it's me. You know, I'm rustling my feathers. You know, what do you got to say? You know, kind of thing. And, and um, her mentality was a lot that way, especially in the beginning of a relationship. Mm. And I said, I don't know how you handle things in there, but not out here in the real world. <laughs> yeah. It's equal. It's equal. Both ways are equal, you know? Mm. And uh, those are some of the things that, you know, I feel like by her lingo um, and changing her lingo, because a lot of it was kind of prison talk. Mm. And I said, you know what, when you're out there, you want people to take you seriously. So you're going to have to speak <laughs> seriously and, and, and not use some of these terms, you know? Um, so, a lot of times I was critiquing her when I was sitting in the audience or like, I'm looking at her. I'm like, Hey, you know, kind of get your shirt kind of thing. <laughs> I kind of stood down or, you know, sit a certain way, you know, those are some of the things I would, you know, I help her with what's out here and calming her down. Um, now it's me. Now I feel like I'm more the aggressor when I need to like own it out. <laughs> Sweet. Well, are you sort of winking at her? Like put a ring on it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we talk about it and Anna's very old school, very, Mm. very old fashioned. Mm. I mean, the way, I mean, even to the fact when I remember coming home at their mom's house, got off of work and I was putting on my tennis and going out. So she says, what are you doing? And I said, I'm going to help you do the lawn. Uh, no, you need to be inside making dinner. So says, who? (laughs) 
I mean, when I come out, I help goes, well, because that's the way my dad and my brothers have been. We, the guys come outside and work. I said, you know what? Did you forget to, did I forget to tell you? We both have the same body parts. But I can go outside and I can go out and do the lawn. I said, if we put it this way, if I go out and help you do the lawn, you get done faster. We can come in, take a shower, have more time with each other. Mm. I shouldn't have opened my mouth. I should have left it the other way. Because <laughs> <laughs> Texas is hot. <laughs> but um, um, back to your your deal. She's old school and old fashioned. So, I mean, although I love what how, what, how it happened for the two of y'all, I would love for her to do this spectacular thing. Like, I don't know. I don't know. What blimp going out that way or, <laughs> in the sand or something. That's not going to be Anna. So don't expect any of that. It, it'd probably be over a cup of ramen noodle soup and just watching TV and then she might say it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, we have our fingers crossed. I just wanted to ask if there's anything else sort of like lingering perspective or thoughts that you have about your experience and where it's brought you to today that you want to convey. Yeah, so I, th- I think that, you know, even though what happened to me was tragic and completely turned my world upside down. Um, I do see the positive in it, meaning I became more educated in the criminal justice system. Um, I am stronger. I am one now to speak out where before I wasn't. I would you know, see something and and be meek, hiding, never wanting to Mm. be noticed, I guess. And now, no, now things have to change and I'm going to be a voice to say that. So basically stronger and better. Mm. It it Mm. has changed me in, in that manner. And I've always looked at the positive side of things. You know, it's, it's a, made me the person I am today. I, I never thought I would have been that strong to get through everything that I went through. Yeah, it's weird. I I feel the same way. It's a weird thing to feel because here's the worst experience of your life that you would never wish on anyone else. And yet there is some, like, it's, it's hard to talk about gratitude when it's like, I'm not, you know, thanking the cops <laughs> you know yeah, right, right. <laughs> right. Like, <for> that level. <laughs> um but you almost have to be like grateful for yourself and for the people who loved you and for the truth and that meaning something to someone like there are a million like little things and big things to be grateful for that turned you into the person you are today and it's it's a weird thing to be grateful for isn't it? And I hope we're not taking wrong, but yes, I mean, you're right. It, it is hard to describe that. Right. Um, and, and the, the way people are going to perceive that, mm-hmm. like, you're absolutely right. No, we're not thanking everybody that put us in prison, but I think we're just looking at it in a different way. And I think it's okay. I yeah. think it's okay to do that. The way I always see Amanda's situation, and I think you're probably in a similar boat here, it's not the wrongful conviction that made you who you are. You made you who you are. You made you who you are in relation to that thing that was dropped on top of you. Um, and that you d- you acted in relation to that experience in a lots of ways. You made the choice 
to refuse that treatment, even though it meant your privileges get taken away because your honor and the principle mattered. You made that choice. Um, Have you come to see yourself as the author of who you've become through all this? (laughs) (laughs) i mean that was very well said i I love that i wish i already recorded that um no that was very well said chris you have a way with words (laughs) he's a poet (laughs) what it is (laughs) no i i haven't i haven't thought about about it that way i mean not everyone emerges from this stronger and devoted to helping people you know some people get get flattened by it you didn't get flattened you should be proud of that oh i appreciate it guys anna is now the outreach and education director for the innocence project of texas the same organization that took her case she continues to work to create a fairer system than the one she went through every state and or region in the country has its own innocence project we urge you to look up the one that serves your state and support them in the meantime get lost with us Find us on Twitter, at Amanda Knox. At Man Under Bridge. We try our best to tell stories that matter, to ask hard questions, and to stay real and vulnerable and honest. And we couldn't do it without you. So thank you for listening. And please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about Labyrinths. This episode was written and produced by us and Sophia Gates, with editing and sound design by Josh Thane and theme music by Josh Budo Karp. <laughs>